Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on September 7th, 2014. Today's message is The Great Escape by Dr. Lyle Schrag, based on Psalm 34. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come into this place and we come to a time of worship, we do so, Lord, as we do each and every week fully recognizing that throughout the week our life has been a journey, an adventure, and in some cases uh, a wandering. But, Lord, in the course of the journey of this week, we we freely confess that there have been wrinkles set within our lives and within our soul. And, Lord, here in this time of worship and, Lord, before your table, we come that you might iron Iron out those wrinkles and that, Lord, you might set us straight upon a path that is in your presence and, Lord, for your purpose. And so, Lord, I pray as we open your word now and we might open our hearts as well and that you might speak to us in a very special way so that, Lord, we might, we might live lives of purpose and meaning and, and direction and guidance under your hand. And in that, Lord, we might be able to rejoice in you, that we might praise your name, and that, Lord, we might know what it is to live in the light of glory. This I pray in the powerful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, with the fall upon us this morning, I'm going to bring our summer journey through the book of Psalms to a close with what is one of the liveliest psalms you're going to ever find. It'll be Psalm 34, and if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open up to that. Uh, and as you do, I'm going to make a confession. I, I find the background of this uh, psalm to be one of the funniest stories in the Bible. So you're going to have to indulge me as I set up the background of it. If you open up to Psalm 34, you will see that right away there is a little note right there, a little historical note. Psalm 34 of David, and it says here, When he feigned, and that means he faked, uh, uh, insanity before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. That's the, the historical note that is set there. And you will find that a number of the Psalms uh, have such historical notes. And I appreciate that because it helps make sense of things. It helps give context to the words that you will read. And here, the psalm is glued to one of those moments in David's life that make for a great outtake, a blooper reel, as it were, of, of, of boneheaded plays. And I have it on your outline as his, his closest call. Now, the story is found in 1 Samuel, and specifically 1 Samuel 21. So if you have your finger in Psalm 34, you might want to turn over to uh, 1 Samuel 21 just to check to make sure that I've got my history straight. And I'll give you just the Reader's Digest version of it. Actually, the story begins eh, even before that in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel verse 17, or chapter 17, where the young man David had finally burst onto the scene. And you all know the moment that I'm talking about. That's with David and Goliath, and David being a little shepherd boy, and Goliath being the Philistine giant. And you know how David then dropped Goliath when one, with one stone in the middle of his forehead, killed him, and took his sword, and then got ahead in life. You get that? Got ahead in life. Anyhow. Well, well, David then, at that moment in time, became a folk hero, just overnight. 
which didn't make the king at the time, King Saul, very happy. And so through the next few chapters of 1 Samuel, you can see that a fury begins to build into the king, into King Saul, until it finally becomes a fit of rage. And he decides that David has got to go. And in chapter 20, the king's son Jonathan, a sworn buddy of David, warns David that, that the king has put a contract out on his head. Now, hey, I'm from Chicago. I know what contracts are. Uh, so uh, I, know, I know people. You know, the contract is out. So David runs for his life with nothing but the clothes on his back, what I would call the great escape. Now, on his way, he stops at a little village called Nob, where a few priests give him some food, which is great. But David realizes that while he's got clothes on his back and, and, and food in his pack, he doesn't have anything to defend himself with. And... and, and uh, just at that time, the priests say, that's really no problem. We've got just the thing for you. Remember the sword that you took from Goliath? Well, we've been keeping it warm for you. So here it is, all wrapped up and ready to go. It's right there in 1 Samuel 21, verses 9 through 10. They give him the sword. So David then takes off on a run. He's packing heat. And the problem is he, he didn't get a map for it. Uh, he doesn't have a GPS, he doesn't have a TomTom, -tom, he doesn't have a Garmin, because the next stop he makes is the city of Gath. Now, let me stop for just a moment and ask the question, does the name Gath ring any bells? Does it sound familiar to you? Let me give you a clue. What was Goliath's last name? Goliath of Gath. Good move, David. Uh, here David stumbles not only just into enemy territory, but he actually finds himself at Gath just after having killed the hometown hero. Now, you get an idea that he, he might be at risk at this moment in time. And let me add a side note now to the scenario. Uh, how many stones uh, did David take out of the stream when he went up to, uh, to, to fight against Gath? Anybody remember? He took five stones. How many did he need? Just one. So what about the other four? In, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 40, five smooth stones. He only needed one, so why pick up five? Some of you may know that answer. Because there were four more giants in Gath. You see that in 2 Samuel 21, verse 22. Two of those giants, of the four who remained in Gath, were Goliath's brothers. Now add all that together, okay? And you get the picture. You can just imagine the scene here now. Picture this. David pulls up into Gath, and the Gath Highway Patrol car parks next to him and says, Hey, boy, you ain't from around here, are you? He says, oh, no, no. Uh, what, hey, but what, what you got under your arm there? Oh, nothing. Sure it is. Open up the package. Oh, wait, it looks like a sword. Oh, hey, I know that sword. This belongs to cousin, cousin Goliath. What is, what is this, some kind of joke? What's your name, boy? Uh, David. David? Oh, you in a heap of trouble, boy. <laughs> you can just picture this scene. And I love the way David's response is recorded in 1 Samuel 21, verse 12. David took 
these words to heart and was very much afraid. Well, you know, th that's a classic understatement, isn't it? That's why I think this is one of the funniest sections. <laughs> you know, he took these words to heart and he was very afraid I would be too. I mean, just put yourself in the position. Consider the most dangerous position that you have ever found yourself. Would the word afraid adequately cover what might be going through your heart? How about terror? <laughs> how, you know, how, fright. So what does David do? In 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15, it says he feigned, and again, from Psalm 34, that means faith. He faked insanity in their presence and began to act like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. <laughs> now, now that, 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 that is not the type of thing that you would suspect from a superhero. You know, you know, it's not the type of thing that you would expect from, you know, from, from an action figure. He doesn't go into karate stance. He doesn't take on the royal guard. Uh, he, he feigns insanity, and he begins to drool. <laughs> it's not the type of thing that you would expect James Bond to do. But it works. And in verse 14, it says, The king of Gath takes one look at David, and he says, Look at this man. He is insane. Why are you bringing him to me? And I love this. Now, and as I read this, imagine the look on the rest of the royal entourage that surrounds him as he says these words. Um, am I so short of madmen <laughs> that you would bring such a fellow like this here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Do I have to add this madman to the rest that are already with me. So away with him. Send him on his way. And so in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, in verse 1, David left Gath, and he escaped to the cave in Adullam. From Gath, now to a cave. Where he finds himself hiding, and he is all alone and left to his own thoughts. Who knows what the nature of those thoughts would be? It's not hard to imagine, however. The thoughts might in include shame, embarrassment, all kind of mixed together, maybe even with relief. Whatever it is, his feelings are his only companions at that lonely moment. And it is there that he puts pen to paper, or if you prefer, quill to scroll, uh, stick to hide, or whatever it works, and he begins then to write Psalm 34. And if you listen carefully to his first words, you will hear the sound of man after God's own heart. It is the language of relief, a relief from an escape. In Psalm 34, verse 1, he writes, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually on my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, these are the words of, of someone who has just escaped with his life. And he begins with the word blessed. What a profound word. In the Hebrew word, the word blessed shares a common root with the Hebrew verb, which means to kneel. And, and here it paints a very moving picture of blessing. God, blessing God by kneeling before him with a voice of appreciation and heartfelt gratitude. Stop for just a moment and ask yourself, have you ever survived such a close call? Have you ever escaped 
what could have been a horrible disaster. Do you know anybody who has? Do they actually talk like this? Or do you hear things like, oh man, am I, am I so lucky? I can't believe I got away with it. I'll never do anything like that again. Look, we all, we all do silly things, even stupid things with a capital stoop, but you know what's even more sillier or stupider? Having gotten into trouble and then come out of the trouble not learning anything at all as a result. Here David had learned a profound spiritual lesson. He's not satisfied with simple relief, being alone in the cave. He finds himself now willingly being mentored by our Lord and not only takes the lessons to heart, but is determined then to instruct others to do it as well. Go back to 1 Samuel, there in chapter 22, verse 2, you will find that it did not take long before David was no longer alone. He may have started alone in the cave, but then he found himself quickly surrounded by, it says, about 400 men. And what I find fascinating is a description of who these companions are. In verse 2 it says, his, these men, these 400 who came to him, were in distress in debt or discontented. They were the ones who gathered around him, and then it reads, he became their leader. The one to teach them, to guide them, and to instruct them. The losers, as you were, of society. The ones in distress and in debt and discontent. Now let me pause for a moment and share a thought. It's been my experience over the years that as a pastor, when someone encounters a life-changing challenge, something like a family disaster or a life-threatening illness, something that is actually huge, it's almost as if God makes them magnetic. Ma magnetic. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you can go through your day never once encountering anyone with your issue, but suddenly you are hit with the crisis, and, and, and it's as if everywhere from that point on you go, you go, you will run into people who have the very same problem. Do you not understand when I say being magnetic? You lose a spouse. Suddenly you find yourself surrounded by widows or widowers. You find yourself having cancer. Suddenly you find yourself surrounded by people who have cancer. It's like you become magnetic. It's like some type of divine law of physics where God has changed the structure of your life. And I'm convinced that he does it for a purpose. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, we suffer so that we might aid those who likewise suffer. And if that is true, then I have to ask you, what aid would I give if asked by another with likewise suffering? What aid would others find in you? What lessons have you learned that God would want to then carry over into another life? I have to think that in Psalm 34, David answers that question, and here, as if to say, here is what I have learned. In fact, the way he puts it in verses 1 through 3, it is more than just lessons to be shared. This actually becomes the rules for this community of 401 men. Look very carefully. He goes from his own personal statement, I will bless, I will praise, now to a determination for others. The humble shall hear, they shall rejoice. And then finally to the bottom line, this is what we will do together. An invitation that is made. Magnify the Lord with me. Let 
us exalt his name together. Do you see that progression there? And I can almost imagine this as the welcoming speech that he gives to every single one of those 400 that arrive at his cave, given to the distressed and discontented as they appear at the mouth of his cave. Welcome, now magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Okay, how do I do this? David says... I'm glad you asked. And here is what I've learned. In verse 4, the language changes again to become David's now personal testimony. Listen to what he's learned in verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Skip to verse 6. The poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Look at those two verbs there. I sought, and I called out. As I have it on your outline, it begins with an earnest, or you might even call it a desperate determination, and a focused search. It is focused on the Lord. And the testimony is, it works. It delivers, it saves that we turn to seek out and call out upon the Lord. And then notice how seamlessly David makes it a rule of community in expecting the same for others, again, in verses 5 and 7. Those who look to him are radiant. The angels of the Lord encamp around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Who is those and them? It is more, I would suggest, than just the 400 fugitives who had joined David. It is you and me as well who come into this sanctuary each and every Sunday and bring along with us those who are discouraged and discontent. And then, that's lesson number one. I have to make an earnest call. Then we move to lesson number two. Set yourself aside and prepare to be amazed. Now, I know that's a bit different than than the outline, but I had down there eager response. But in verses 8 through 10, there is a bit of a challenge that is there. In verse 10, he talks about lions in light of their appetites. (laughs) They won't eat unless it's something they want, and if they don't get it, they grow weak and hungry. I remember as a child living in Chicago, um, the TV show Wild Kingdom. Do any of you ever remember the television show Wild Kingdom? There, oh, bless your heart. We're showing our age, aren't we? Yeah, okay. A a wild wild kingdom with Marlon Perkins. Do you remember Marlon Perkins? Yeah. He was the director of the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago where I lived. And and I really wanted to go to the zoo and, and, and had my mom actually call up to find out when it was feeding time because in one show he had revealed that they had to feed the lions fresh bloody meat because they wouldn't settle for anything less no matter how much better it would be for them. And so we went. At the right time. Now, just the idea of seeing lions at feeding time thrilled me. I was a sick little child. But as I read this, I think God has got something better in mind for you and me than what we demand for ourselves. He says, taste and see what the Lord, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. My appetites aren't focused on the bloody meat that lions eat, lions die. But it says here, those who seek the Lord lack 
no good thing. That's where my appetite is satisfied. Do you believe it? Then go for it. And quickly, then, he turns now to the third lesson. Get at it. I love the the, the verse, verse 12. Not everyone wants to get out of bed in the morning. There are those who are afraid, overwhelmed, and discouraged, but they find, com- uh, they, they find comfort in avoiding the day. But those who fear the Lord, in verse 11 says, love life and desire to see many good days. They don't hide with the pillow over their head. They don't groan at the break of the day. It says they love life and they desire to see many good days. They wake up expecting every day to be a good one. And as a result, they have at it. As I read that verse in verse 11, my mind goes back to the 400 hapless men who joined David. Those words would have, would have, would have come like a wake-up call, literally. These are the same people who would have been quickly given a new name than David's mighty men as a result of taking these lessons to heart. Loving life with a passion uh, and looking forward to many good days, it translated them from being those who were discouraged, life's losers, into becoming the mighty men. And ask yourself, how about you? What do you want to be known as? Are you loving God and are you living on purpose? In a few moments, the focus of our worship is going to bring us to the Lord's table. And together we will share the broken bread and the cup of Christ. Dare I draw a picture from this psalm where each one of us, like David, may find ourselves in our own cave. May have come into this sanctuary this morning licking our own wounds, feeling so all alone, surrounded by reminders of of embarrassment, shame, fear, only to find that in seeking the Lord, he is here. And in calling to the Lord, your cry has been heard. And in the tasting of the bread and the cup, we find that the Lord is good, and you are blessed, and in you, and in him, you now are alive. Sharing the bread and the cup in a holy moment, made holy as you answer that question from the heart, where you say, I love the Lord, and I will live to fulfill his purpose. This is the turning point. And in Psalm 34, that turning point may be subtle, but once the term has been made, then David describes and applies what it means to live a life lived on purpose. Look at verse 13. The focus now turns to the future. And the orders are now made clear. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do any of those things really need to be explained? Probably not, but they do need to be said, absolutely. And there, are something, there is something healthy in the simplicity of these words. Put the past behind now and go and do the right thing. And if you're not sure what it is, David goes on, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and delivers them from all their troubles. Back to doing the right thing. If you're not sure what it is, take it up with the Lord. He's already answered your cry by saving you from your troubles. Keep crying and you can count on him to answer whatever questions you have in your heart about what it means to do the right thing. And it requires only really one thing of you. An honest and real spirit of humility. Look at verse 18. 
The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now contrast with, 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 with the verse, with, with, with the conventional temptation. I'm always amused to hear people who, who really don't get it try to explain what it means to be a Christian by quoting their favorite verse. God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that? It's bogus, by the way. It ain't in the Bible. Don't look for it. But here is, is, is that the righteous in verse 19 honestly admit that they have many troubles and that their hearts are broken and that their spirits are fragile, but that they are in God's hand and that is what makes all the difference. And it's because of that they, or should I know, say, we are finally able to answer the call then that comes in the next verse. Glorify the Lord magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's not our glory that counts. It's his. It's not your name that needs to be lifted up in lights. It's his. You can do that when you resolve to love him and live to his purposes, but even more, you can do this much more as you do it together and resolve as a congregation to exalt his name together. I love the word as it is found in the New American Standard Version. It says, magnify the Lord. It sounds so theological, where in fact it is actually quite simple. What do you normally think of when you hear that word, magnify? Your glasses, maybe? Or maybe a telescope, or maybe a microscope, whatever. It describes an object that is capable of making something that is very distant and remote, unseen, certainly uh, uh, out there so far away that it escapes vision and suddenly it becomes visible. And it's large. And it's revealed. And that is precisely what your commitment to love God and live according to his Purpose accomplishes with other people as well. You become a lens by which they are able to see God up close and personal. People should be able to look at each one of us and actually see through us and beyond us and discover how wonderful and how beautiful our Lord really is. That's our calling. And Jesus made it clear when he said, You shall be my witnesses. People should be able to, to, to see through us as if they were looking down the tube of a telescope and see God up close and in stunning detail. It could be otherwise. Or you could turn a telescope around and you know exactly what happens. Objects actually shrink into obscurity. As we come to the Lord's table, make it your commitment to get it right. Maybe with a prayer like John the Baptist's, he must increase, and I decrease. It's time for us to turn things around. And as we come to, close to, this, to, to the close of a summer of psalms, maybe this is a time for renewal for every single one of us. This is a verse of invitation for a fellowship to take things to another level. Let us exalt his name together in the taking of the bread and the taking of the cup. I was reading of one of the world's most powerful telescopes and was impressed by one fact.
Rather than having just one large lens, just one highly polished mirror, it was in fact a honeycomb of thousands of mirrors, each positioned by computer control to focus on the most distant light of the galaxies, onto one single point of contact. Alone, each mirror could reflect something, but together their effect was enormous. And as I see a congregation gathered together here this morning, I love to see the sparkle in your eyes. And here and there, I love to see that heart of resolve. But my prayer is that with each response, your sparkle becomes a beam, and that together we might become a beacon that truly magnifies the Lord. May his name be praised. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have called upon you and called you by name and known of your grace. And you have delivered us. And Lord, you now live with us. We thank you for your presence and your guidance and your care. We thank you for your leadership and for the days that lie ahead. Lord, we lift ourselves and our eyes to you and we magnify your holy name. We do this in that name, that powerful and wonderful name, the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.